0: Let's get started, everyone. It is 12:30. Glad that you braved the rain, and it's a dreary day, but we had some really good stew, so that'll keep you warm for the rest of the day. We are the better for it. Yes, we, we. It was yes, yes. It was hard. We persevered in your absence. Yeah, you know, now we know how Christians feel through the ages waiting for the Messiah's return. <laughs> Longing. <clears throat> and today is your parousia, so we're glad. <clears throat> I put out on the table over there two um, the cards that tell people, there's two cards. One tells people about this Bible study in particular and where they can go online to listen take one before you leave your challenge is give it to someone like physically put it in their hand and invite them next week to come to this study uh, we have so much food and so much room let's pack this place out the other is for those of you that don't know but it's for the other aspect of my ministry which is the the refugee um, immigrant and lower income kids program that i do jujitsu anti bullying women's self-defense stuff that's on there and there's a link on the back right to the page on the website that tells all about it. You can see some cool videos of the kids on there. And then also a link if people wanna donate uh, to that, they can donate specifically. We are really trying to get some funding this year and uh, move beyond a shoestring budget. So the more monthly donors we get, even if it's like 20 bucks a month, the better it is overall. And the better for this ministry as well. So before you leave, grab one of those and Let's get back into Deuteronomy. We're finishing up this week the historical prologue of Deuteronomy, that section of the covenant documents where the, the, the people entering into the covenant get an overview of the events that lead up to the covenant. And that's what God's been doing with Israel. Moses has been giving them the historical prologue of what will be their reaffirmation of this covenant at the end of the book. And so they're, they're basically being reminded a second time of the covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai. That's why Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, Deuteronama, second law. And it's not really a second law as much as it's a repeat of the law, the, the agreement that their parents made at Mount Sinai. They are now reaffirming on the plains of Moab right across the jordan river it's really interesting i think we mentioned before but when jesus is driven out into the wilderness and he's tempted by satan three times he always responds with a quote from deuteronomy and it's in the place where israel was where he was tempted they're, they're in that wilderness on the east side of the jordan river looking into the promised land that's where jesus was driven out where he was tested so jesus's life kind of patterns itself in some ways in many ways on deuteronomy in the events that it describes as he then goes back into israel to relive their destiny but to get it right where israel got it wrong and that's sort of how deuteronomy and the whole of torah informs the new testament but we've we looked at the first half of chapter four last week where god's brought them up to speed and then he's now saying now because i've done all this because i've brought you here because i am your suzerain you are my vassal i am your great king you are my servant you cannot serve other great kings it is an exclusive contract between israel and god they cannot go after other gods and the way you go after other gods in the ancient near east is through calling upon those gods and the way you call upon other gods in the ancient near east is through idols through the use of images, idols. You, now, The ancients didn't believe that the actual idol was the god. You know, if they had a statue of Baal. They didn't believe, okay, this is literally Baal. But what they believed was that after a ceremony took place, that, that the, the essence of Baal infused that statue somehow, and that statue became a touch point where they could then have access to Baal or to manipulate, or to get Baal to do the things that they wanted, or Asherah, or Moloch, or Chemosh, or any of the gods of the Canaanites. And so that's how idolatry worked. It was was like reaching up into the divine and pulling a little piece of it and taking it with you and pulling it out when you needed it. And so God has said to Israel, That's not me. You're not going to relate to me that way. That's why he's so intent on forbidding idolatry. And so he says, we ended the last week, verse 24, he says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, he's already told Israel, I've married you. This is the, the events at Sinai, the prophets will speak of it later as Israel's marriage. God and Israel got married at Mount Sinai. That was the covenant. They'll also speak of it as the firstborn. So he's used these two relationships. God's relationship to Israel is thought of as a father and his firstborn son, the heir, the the inheritance that the father will give to the son. So he talks to Israel a lot about their inheritance, that they're going to possess the land of Canaan and the promises of the patriarchs that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they're the heir. But he also speaks to them as if they were his wife and he were their faithful husband. Um, And so those two relationships, and those are two of the closest relationships that there are, a parent to child and a husband to wife you don't. There, there aren't any closer relationships than that and so God casts himself in that mode and so he talks about you know going after other gods is like spurning your inheritance it's like saying I don't want what you're going to give me father okay or it's like saying it's like cheating on your spouse like I'm going to go outside of this marriage to fulfill my desires husband or wife so that's, what's, that's what, in the mind of God, that's what idolatry and breaking of the commandments is. It's not just being bad. It's not just doing bad things. Yeah, it's doing bad things, but it's, it's, it's doing things that you should not do because you've made a covenant commitment. That's the real root of it. It's serious business, it's serious business very serious. And so God's warning them in this passage. He says, verse 25 now, Moses, as a prophet, looking ahead and speaking, or God speaking through Moses, whoever you want to cast as the speaker in this section. Moses is telling Israel what is going to happen in the future. This is the verse that has eschatological implications, which means in later days it has to do with Israel when they're in the land. And we see a dynamic here that's very important. He says, after you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking Him to anger. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that you will quickly perish from the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. No, it's a warning, and he's warning Israel of what we know from this side of history is exactly what happened later. They did go into the land. They did get involved with idolatry. They did allow images and idols to be made. They did run after the other gods, the gods of Canaan, and God warned them through his prophets. Prophet after prophet after prophet, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back to this. When the prophets came preaching, they weren't just speaking something new. They were calling Israel back to this covenant, back to what they promised in Deuteronomy. You can't understand the prophets of the Hebrew Bible without an understanding of Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy is the document that they are holding Israel accountable to because this was the covenant contract. And so the prophets that come, when they use the word return, 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 it gets translated sometimes as repent. And it does mean repent, but repent just means turn around and go back. So they were calling Israel, not just repent in general of being bad, but return to the covenant. Repent, go back to what you should have done, which is this covenant, because this judgment, heaven and earth as witness, God is saying the whole creation is witness to this agreement I'm making with you, that I will punish you if you, uh, basically, if you tear up the contract, if you don't uphold your end of this deal. His agreement with Israel was bilateral, not unilateral. His promise to Abraham was unilateral. He was the only one that walked through the pieces of that animal in Genesis 15, meaning Abraham's seed would inherit the promises that God made. That was not. That, there was no way that was not going to be fulfilled. But Abraham had multiple seeds, well, not just Israel. You know, all of the, everybody that descended from Abraham. You know, people from the line of Esau, people from the line of. Um, uh, Ishmael, people from, you know, these, the Ammonites, the Moabites, these are all technically Abraham's offspring. I mean, they all go back to Abraham's family, at least, his covenant family, even lots descendants. But what God was saying, he made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm going to give your seed, this land and all of these covenant promises so that all the world will be blessed through it. That's the promise we've spent a year and a half looking at that in Genesis about four years ago. And the unfolding of the Old Testament has been an unfolding of that plan. So now Israel enters, or or God has brought through the past three books that we've looked at, has brought the family of a man named Israel who was the grandson of Abraham into its own as a nation and says, now to carry forward that unilateral promise I made to Abraham, I'm going to choose you and enter into an agreement with you. And if you keep my covenant, you will be the means by which I reach the world, you as a nation. And he enters into a bilateral covenant with Israel. That's what Mount Sinai is. That's why they had to agree three times. Yes, we'll do everything the Lord commands. Moses sprinkles the blood on them in the the commitment ceremony, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, and then afterwards, uh, towards before the tabernacle instructions. And the people three times they say, yes, everything we do, the Lord says we'll command. So now the agreement is very conditional. Israel's, as a nation, Israel's occupancy of the land is 100% conditional on their obedience to the Torah. The promise to Abraham is unconditional. His offspring will inherit the land. But that part of his offspring known as Israel may or may not. It will depend on, as we're reading right now, if they follow if they keep the covenant. And we know that they won't. So it'll seem like all is lost later as we look back on Israel's history. But even in that, God makes a promise that within those people, there's going to be a faithful remnant and he's going to give them a chance to redeem or to be redeemed. So he goes on to say, I'll scatter you among the nations. You know, that happened at the the scattering of the Assyrians and then later, finally, the Babylonian exile. There... Meaning in captivity, when you're outside of this land. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. In other words, you go after other gods, the gods of other nations, you'll end up worshiping them, those gods, in captivity in those lands. And you will have a relationship, all right, but it'll be with gods who can't eat or see or hear or smell instead of the living God who's done all this for you. Verse 29, though, here's the turning point. But if from there... You seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things have happened to you, then in the later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. Now, this verse can also be translated a different way. The Hebrew can also, that's how the NIV that I just read you, but it can also be translated as <clears throat> you will see you will look for him with all your heart with all your soul period, or excuse me, comma, when you're in distress, period. All these things, if they happen to you in later days, then you will return to the Lord your God. So there's like a, it can be read in a couple of different ways, but it's either a conditionality saying that if this stuff happens, then you can return to me or saying this will happen and you will return to me. The meaning's pretty much the same, but just know there's a, there's a couple of different ways that that verse can read. But the point is that even after the exile, even after the judgment, Moses is looking even beyond that and saying, but that judgment, though it seems final in the moment, there will be a chance for restoration if you seek the Lord with all your heart. When Jesus said, seek and you will find, he wasn't just speaking a random philosophical truth. He was a prophet of Yahweh talking to Israel in captivity. Even though they're back in the land, Rome was still over them. They were in captivity in their minds. And what was Jesus calling them to do? Seek the Lord. Jesus always called Israel back to Torah. Why? Because he was the prophet of all prophets. Jesus didn't invent anything new. He brought Torah to its completion to inaugurate the new covenant. But even that was promised in the Torah itself. So this is a radical concept to understand for most people. Jesus did not completely break from the Old Testament. He called Israel back to the Old Testament, and then after His death, resurrection, ascension, and the giving of the Spirit, that's when the New Covenant then officially came into being. But while Jesus was alive, He was calling Israel back to Torah, because that would be the thing that would then bring forth the New Covenant which it did in him. So he goes on, You know, if you seek it, you'll find, uh, verse 31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. You just said back in the previous uh, paragraph, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Now to balance that, because the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which He confirmed to them by oath. He's talking about that thing He did with Abraham. Where he confirmed it with an oath, passed through the pieces of the animal, saying, By my own blood, I declare, you will inherit, your offspring will inherit the land, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. That's going to happen. The question is for this generation, like the question for their parents' generation that we saw last year, will they be part of it or not? So then it goes on, this section ends up saying, uh, Verse 32 Ask now about the former days long before your time, from the day God created man upon the earth, ask from one end of heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? Or some translations say, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by... And he lists seven things, testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Everything he just described is the Exodus, that he just described the Exodus. Everything we read in Exodus chapters 1 through chapter 20 is what God just described here. And he basically said to Israel, think, has this ever happened? Have you ever heard of a nation being pulled out of another nation and brought into its own through such mighty works, through the acts that God did about the, against the gods of, of Egypt? The rhetorical answer is no. We have not seen this. this is a, the exodus is a unique thing in the history of humanity. is what God's saying. And He's telling Israel, remember, this is the climax. This is the final part of this sermon. And that's what this first section is of the historical prologue. It's a sermon. He's he's at his main point. This is where he would be maybe pounding the pulpit or pointing his finger or whatever preachers like to do, but he's getting their attention. This is it, the main point. He says, it's about the Exodus, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord Yahweh is God and beside Him there is no other. From heaven He made you hear His voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire because he loved your forefathers and chose their seed after them or descendants. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land and give it to you for your inheritance. Firstborn son language. Out of Egypt, I called my firstborn son. The inheritance to give to that son is the land that he called them out of Egypt, the Canaanite land, the promised land. And he's doing it because, like we read back in Genesis 15, he promised Abram, by the time your offspring have become as numerous as the stars in the sky and are ready to be brought into the land, the people who are in this land, their judgment uh, will be ripe. They will be ready for judgment. Their evil will have reached a point where I cannot delay any longer. And your offspring, Abram, will be what I use to drive them to cleanse the land of their defilements. That's God's plan for the Canaanites is His plan for humanity during the flood. He's pulled Noah out and cleansed the land with the flood. Now, a second time, that's what He's doing on a smaller scale in the land of Canaan. But He's not using flood. He's using Israel and he's not using a mighty army he's using a very weak army which is Israel and they cannot do this on their own they can't we've seen what happened to the previous generation when they tried to fight the Canaanites on their own they got beat down all the way to Horma and so now he's saying but if God is in your midst no one can stop you and they've done that this generation against King Sion and King Og in the last part of the book of Numbers and so he's recalling them he's basically God saying with me you can do everything apart from me you can do nothing jesus would pick up on that theme when he talked about being the vine which was an image of israel originally he'd say i'm the true vine you're the branches abide in me you'll bear much fruit but apart from me you can do nothing god would later talk about israel this israel as a vine who he planted in canaan and he expected to bear fruit and they bore nothing Jesus would tell a parable about that same thing. So all of this stuff is interconnected. All these images, it's the story of Israel. And so he's saying, again, verse 37, I'm bringing you into this land because I loved you? No. Because I loved your forefathers. Because I loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And love means more than just felt fondness for. Love means I had a relationship with... And I am loyal to to love someone in the ancient Near East. Kings would use, outside of Israel, kings would use the language of love to describe vassals who were loyal to them. So, if a vassal, if a small state served the king of Assyria, it's actually written this, you know, this city, whatever, loved King so and so, and that's what they mean was loyal to, was devoted to. And so, what God's saying is, I loved. Not warm fuzzies or valentines, but I loved your ancestors. I'm devoted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because I made them a promise. And I based that promise on my own life when I walked between those pieces. So all of this is important because Israel will get into the land and be tempted to think that it's because of anything they did. Or they'll start to think, well, we're God's chosen people, so we're special. And God's in Deuteronomy, and he's going to do it more and more throughout the book. He's going to grind into their minds. It's not because you're special. It's because I'm being loyal to a promise I made to your forefathers. And, and their presumption of specialness and chosenness will lead to their downfall when the Babylonians finally come in under Jeremiah. And it's a problem. It's a, it's a, it's a temptation for believers throughout every age. Yes, God's heir. You're God's offspring. You, you're a kingdom of priests. You have access to the throne room, and you can approach Him boldly in prayer. Blah 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 blah. But do not think you stand, lest you fall, as Paul would say. Or the Book of Hebrews will talk about you know the danger of having all of these privilege, but then turning away from that God and what will befall you. There's always a danger of presumption among God's people, and so it's that balance. How do we walk in assurance without dipping over into presumption? And the key is through what Torah says, obedience of the heart, maintaining an attitude of this is not because of anything I've done, but it's because of God's faithfulness that I'm here today, and then a desire to seek the Lord with everything we've got and to walk in His ways. For us in the New Covenant, it looks different than it did for Israel in the Old Covenant, but it's still the same calling. Why? In order to be a light to the nations. The whole purpose of faith in God is so other people will see that faith in God and be drawn to that God. Not be drawn to the righteousness of the person doing the thing. That's what Jesus warned against. But genuine righteousness that will draw people to want to know what do they have in terms of this relationship with God. That's why, so this Bible study, you know, I tell you, take a card and give it to somebody. That's directly in line with, th- with this. If you just come and feed yourself Physically, spiritually, that's of no use. God has no use for that. The kingdom has no use for spiritually fat Christians. What He wants is Christians who are being filled so that they can then fill others or give to others. So everything we do, a Bible study like this, a church service, a missions project, a serving opportunity, like from, from beginning to end, God's always been a missional God. It's easy for us to get comfortable in the land, right? In, in, circled around with people like ourselves. Everybody somewhat agrees. We'll argue about some stuff, but we basically are all on Team Jesus. Don't worry about the rest of the world. It's dying. They're going to headlong into hell. Who cares? We've got our holy huddle. We're good to go. That's the temptation. And it's so, so antithetical to everything that the Torah is about. God has always called the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's what he's telling Israel. So he says, <clears throat> uh, brought you out of Egypt, as you're it today, verse 39. Therefore, acknowledge, or know in a command sense, know and take to heart Today, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands. The verb keep is the verb guard, like guard duty, like what you would intently observe. That's the phrase that Moses is using. Not just keep his commands, like, okay, I did that, but like guard his commands that you keep them. Be, pay, pay attention to yourself in how you live in the land. Uh... Keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you with your, and with your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. So, if you want to live as God's covenant people, what God's saying is guard your ways. Do these things, this Torah, that I've given you and he's about to repeat it and that's what the next section we, we move immediately into the stipulation section of the covenant and everything that comes from now from this chapter 4 verse 41 all the way through like chapter 20 is going to be repeating the covenant stipulations that he had told at mount sinai to their ancestor or their the previous generation 40 years ago So if it starts to sound repetitive, just remember for them, there's been 40 years that have elapsed. It's a whole new generation, a whole new setting. They're no longer going to be given commands for how they should live in the wilderness like the first generation was because they're not going to live in the wilderness. They're going to live in the land. So the, the law will be repeated, but it'll be repeated sometimes with a little bit differently than it was in Exodus because the situation is a different one. Every generation would have new challenges and a new situation, and God knows that. And so part of the covenant documents were when a covenant, when there was a new king or a new vassal king would arise, then the covenant that the old vassal king made with the suzerain would be rewritten, terms updated, and then the new king and his people would take the oath and take the covenant upon themselves. And that's what Deuteronomy is. That's what Moses is doing for the people. So then the last thing to, to sort of begin the stipulations is he says, first, we're outside of Canaan right now. We're, we're on the plains of Moab. So we're about to go into Canaan at, at the end of the ceremony, but he starts with something that has to do with where they are right now. As the transition, it's kind of a little hinge thing. It seems out of place to some people, but it's, it's a hinge before he gets into the main covenant of what's going to be like in the land. He says, remember though, Uh, verse 41, then Moses set aside three cities east of the Jordan, to which anyone who had killed a person could flee if he had unintentionally killed his neighbor without malice, afterthought, uh, forethoughts rather, he could flee to one of these cities and save his life. These cities were these, Bezer in the desert plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and the Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. That seems weird. But at the end of Numbers, we talked about the cities of refuge. This is tying back into those cities of refuge. So go back and check the Numbers podcast or video if you want to catch up on that. And he's going to talk more about it later. I think in chapter 19, uh, somewhere around there, he'll talk more about these cities of refuge. But these were the three that were to be set up on the east side of the Jordan River. And then the ones that are going to be set up in the land itself, they'll deal with later. But this ends, this, that section ends the historical prologue. And then verse 44, which will start next week, gets into the introduction. Now God's going to restate, here's the stipulations. We made this covenant. I've just given you the history that leads up to this covenant. Now, before we ratify this covenant again, before you sign your name on the dotted line, like your ancestors did, we're going to go over the terms one more time so that you're absolutely clear when you get into that land how you're going to behave as my national covenant entity, my light to the nations, my city on a hill to spread my knowledge throughout the world. That's what the next section of Deuteronomy is. But we're out of time. Have some seconds if you want them. Otherwise, stay dry, stay warm, and have a great week.